John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, Todd. Hi, hello again. And how are you today? Well, given the events uh, since our last show, I'm feeling particularly good because uh, I believe you threw down the gauntlet last time to the audience at large. What was that gauntlet? Yeah, well, I, I can see where you've risen to take that gauntlet because you filled up my my mailbox with all sorts of adventures in this area, including at least one that seriously fit the bill for what I had said. And I'll recap, what I said was I'd like to see these investigations done in a manner similar to what the NTSB does uh, for aviation accidents, which is the standard around the world, the Brits, the Dutch, the French, everybody had a very similar process. Australians, just to mention a few, there's many others as well. And lo and behold, you were able to find a almost 40 year old investigation that had all the elements in it that I was bemoaning. So you're making me eat my own words. <laughs> well, uh, it's a, you, I wouldn't uh, uh, put that, that much on my shoulder because you actually allowed me to look at this in a whole new light because. This was a 1986 event. We're not going to go into great detail right now, but we will soon enough because we want to talk about some other stuff first. But it was a 1986 event where back in 2015, I was actually part of a Smithsonian um, Channel show uh, that was a whole series called uh, UFOs Declassified. And this one was UFOs versus airliners. And I was one of these talking heads talking about this. And, you know, they went into great detail about this. Looking back at that show and the other details, it's like, holy moly, this is exactly what John was talking about that uh, an investigation had, had actually been done on a very serious level. But before we get into air safety investigations and UAP investigations, we'd like to get to one of the letters we recently received from uh, one of our uh, listeners. I'm working towards finishing my degree and focusing on aviation engineering. I'm interested in learning about air accident investigations and a possible second career with the NTSB, or at least in the air accident investigations field. So I was wondering if you guys have any insights as to how I should go about that. Thank you for all that you guys do for aviation safety every day. I truly enjoy your guys' channel. Keep the blue side up, guys. Well, I'm yeah. definitely going to do that last part. As for the first part, I think we have two different perspectives that I think will be useful for uh, James. 
Oh, at least. Because, you know, everybody wants to go to work for the NTSB as an investigator. And that's a very limited number of people. You know, the, the, the entire agency has about 400 people. And they have to do ships and railroads and uh, trains. So the aviation side, counting everybody, is considerably less than 100 people. When you get into the investigation area, uh, you know, there's like five investigator in charge. There's maybe 10 or 15, I'll be generous, say 15 engineering groups, positions in engineering in accident investigation. So there's not a lot, and it's not a lot of movement. Now, right now, there happens to be a number of openings at the NTSB. And I, I saw recently where they're looking to hire a couple of people that have general aviation piston engine experience. So, and that's, that's uh, unusual that they've had a couple of jobs in that area. But in any event, uh, that's where everybody wants to go, but they're overlooking a bigger opportunity, and that's the FAA. The FAA has 50,000 employees, roughly. I'm, I don't have the, the latest numbers, but in flight standards, it's there's uh, over 3,000 uh, inspectors. And in that, they, those people do accident investigations as well. And there's also an accident investigation division within the FAA where people are dedicated to it. So the opportunity to move around and advance is much greater at the FAA than, than it is at the NTSB. And plus, you don't lose sight of some of the other agencies either. Nobody ever talks about uh, the Department of Energy or the Department of Agriculture, both of which have pretty substantial air fleets, either under contract or ones that they own themselves. And they have, both of them have a division that does investigations. So that it's uh, there's other places in the federal government where you can go and do investigations uh, in a meaningful way. So don't lose sight of that. You need to you need to spend some time on the internet and do some uh, window shopping, so to speak, and you'll find it. And then you, you can uh, also search USA jobs where the federal government posts their jobs, no matter where they are. And uh, that's a big help too. So there is opportunity for someone with an aviation engineering degree, more so than a, a, an AMP mechanic or some other people that engineering degree seems to carry the, the weight into investigations, although it's not the end all to all of them because the operation side as well, you know, engineers design things and they think that that design is the way it's operated. Uh, the real world has uh, other ideas sometimes. So yes, he's a, I, I wish I was just coming out for an engineering degree right now myself because the opportunities that are out there are just tremendous today. And engineering is basically the path I took. I had an undergraduate degree in engineering. And uh, after that, I went into the Air Force as a flight test engineer. And after leaving the military, I decided that I wanted to get into a different part of aviation, into the civil aviation side. And when I was in graduate school, I did a bunch of work with respect to uh, what were the uh, regulatory aspects of aviation, uh, monitoring traffic and controlling traffic through pricing, and also, uh, most significantly, working with a particular professor whose expertise, one of his expertises, was in aviation safety. And I was looking at this from the academic statistical, let's look at all the data and see if there are any patterns here that make sense. 
And that led to a career in the industry when I was at Boeing as a safety engineer working on the 777 project and also getting involved in various industry uh, efforts, including dealing with an industry-wide movement toward increasing the level of uh, safety and decreasing risk and working with organizations like John was involved in, Bird Strike Committee USA, where I was interacting with colleagues from around the world dealing with that aspect of aviation safety. And that led to me doing things online back in the early, mid-1990s when the internet was uh, well a bigger Wild West show than it is right now. And I carved out an issue for myself as someone talking about aviation safety from a general perspective and also from the specific perspective of what my two cents was about particular issues. And of course, I was heavily interested and heavily involved in the aviation safety side of things from the mathematical analysis and engineering perspective. Now, could I have gone on to the NTSB? As an employee, I could have, but again, working with John as I did, subsequent to a bird strike event up in Alaska, we were working closely together in the uh, mid-1990s. And I was involved with other people within the FAA and government. Now, beyond my path, the military, all the military branches have significant aviation departments, and they have uh, people within those branches, some of them pilots, some of them not, who are on the aviation safety side of things. There's also the manufacturers, of which I worked for one. There are manufacturers of other kinds of aircraft, and there's a bunch of new manufacturers out there looking at uh, vertical taxis and whatnot, so they may have a need, or if not now, then in the future, for someone with that kind of expertise to look at the to look at the risk and safety aspects of what they do, and we would be remiss if we did not mention the insurance industry and our favorite insurer of Emco, which uh, have people who are looking at aviation safety and accidents for from a different perspective. But still, they have to bring uh, their expertise and their insights into it to try and reduce the accidents that happen, to try to reduce the risk to uh, their clients. Yes, and let's not forget the space side, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, well, when they were in business, and uh, Jeff Bios and his, his adventures, all, all of the space programs all have safety offices embedded in the in the group, and they're most, mostly all engineers. And I have to mention also all those folks online who are doing websites, social media, what have you. And again, they run the range from the serious to the ridiculous. But if you want to get your point of view out there, there is no better way to get experience than by actually doing it yourself. The barrier, barriers to entry is basically zero. Uh, you can use your, your equipment in your pocket, your phone and your computer to put stuff out there. Will your efforts uh, attract an audience? Will your efforts be uh, worth the time and effort? There's only one way to find out and go out there and do it. Yes. So the sky is really the limit. You know, we've heard that over and over and over. But right now, I mean, it really is a wide open plan to So I wish him luck. Now keep in touch. If I can help, well, we can help. Just let us know. Now, and now on to the subject. Well, indeed. Now, uh, of course, the uh, public's awareness of this has increased many fold over the last few years, especially the last couple of months as Congress has gotten into the act of trying to get to the bottom of, hey, what are these things that are going on out there? What are these UAPs? Who's investigating them? And if they are investigating them, how come we're not, we don't know anything about it? 
Well, that's one of the common refrains within uh, government and industry. These things are happening, but for whatever reason, the investigations aren't happening on a regular basis. But as it turns out, they have happened on an irregular basis. And one of the more spectacular ones was almost 40 years ago, 1986. Uh, this was an event involving a gel cargo, uh, Japan Airlines cargo aircraft, a 747 flying from Reykjavik, Iceland to Anchorage, Alaska. It was at nighttime during uh, November 1986. And in short, the flight crew, which is a three-person crew, was a 747-200. They all witnessed not one, not two, but three UAPs over about a 30-minute span where they first saw two anomalous lights out in front of the aircraft, and they thought this was a traditional aircraft, but it was behaving in ways that were completely unlike a normal aircraft. And later on in this encounter, they saw a third something, which uh, the captain describes as something twice the size of a 747. Now, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with aviation, there is nothing twice the size of a 747 that flies at 35,000 feet. Yes, there have been uh, dirigibles and airships that have uh, been about that size, but none of them ever got that high. And this was also flying a lot faster than any traditional uh, aerospace vehicle they were aware of. Not only did they witness it, they had FAA controllers communicating with them in real time on it. They had multiple FAA radars keying in on this. They even brought in military assets to try and uh, figure out what was going on and tried to get other aircraft in the sky to figure out what was going on. In the end, the basic data that they had were the eyewitness reports from the flight crew, radar from the weatherway radar of the aircraft, and ground radar from the FAA. Subsequent to this, there was actually a full-scale investigation involving a person named John Callahan, who I believe was from the FAA office in uh, Atlantic City, who put together all of the information, got a timeline together, put a report together that was presented to other branches of government, the following is a presentation given by John Callahan at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in May 2001 as part of the Disclosure Project, where Callahan described his role in the investigation of Flight JAL-1628. My name is John Callahan. I'm a retired FAA employee. I was the Division Manager for the Accidents Evaluation and Investigation Division in D.C. About two years before I retired, I received a call from Alaska region with the... Uh, region wanted to know what to tell the media. When I questioned, tell the media what, he says about the UFO, and it went downhill from there. What UFO? It turned out I told him what any government employee would do at that time was to tell him it's under investigation. And then I had him send all that data to the FAA's tech center in Atlantic City. The next day, my uh, immediate boss, service director, Harvey Safir, and I went to Atlantic City I just purchased a, uh, a new video camera, and I videoed the, uh, the event. And in Atlantic City, we had them play back on a, uh, on a scope, you would call it a scope, a plan view display, PVD, exactly what the pilot uh, uh, seen or what the controller seen, and we uh, tied that in with the voice uh, tape so we could hear exactly what the controller said and what he heard, and we taped it. We came back the next day. Uh, Brief the administrator, Admiral Ingen, on what happened. He wanted a five-minute briefing. After we started the briefing, he wanted to know if he could see the video. We put the video on. He watched the video, the whole video. The next day, uh, he set up a, uh, a meeting for me to give a dog and pony show 
to President Reagan's scientific staff and whoever they brought over and to hand off all that data to them. That uh, morning in the FAA round room, it was either 9 or 10 o'clock, uh, three men from uh, Reagan's scientific staff, three CIA people, three FBI people, and I don't remember who the other guys were, along with all the FAA experts that I brought with me that could decide or talk about the hardware and the software, how it worked, we put on a dog and pony show. We let them watch the video. We had all the data there. We had all the printouts that the computer uh, put out. They got all excited over it. When it was all done, the uh, CIA, uh, one of the CIA men told the people they were now sworn to secrecy that this meeting never happened and this event never happened. When I asked them why, uh, uh, I, mean, I thought it was probably just a stealth bomber at the time, he says, well, this is the first time that we have uh, recorded radar data on a UFO, and these guys are going to get all excited uh, drooling over all this data. I said, well, you're going to tell the public about it. And he says, no, we don't tell the public about this. It would uh, panic the public. He says, we're going to go back and study this. I said, okay. That uh, was what he was going to do. Now, I've told this story many times, and I get sometimes funny looks from people. I have with me the uh, voice tapes of the uh, controllers that were involved, the FAA original tapes. See, after we handed this stuff off to the president's staff, the FAA didn't know what to do with it. We don't separate UFOs from real traffic, so it's not our problem. Okay? I have a copy of the original of the uh, video that we took, which is rather interesting. And once, once the thing was all over, the reports started coming into my office, but because it wasn't an FAA air traffic problem, the FAA's report ended up on a table in my office. And it stayed there until I retired when one of the staffers packed up all my gear and helped it move to my house. Also, in a box I found just a few good days ago, in my 1992 tax return, I have the target printouts from the uh, computer data, which so if you wanted to return or, or, or look at every target that was up there at the time, you can now reproduce this from this piece of paper here. And it's called the UFO Incident. Uh, Japan 1648, I believe the number was, that happened on November the 18th, 1986. There was another gentleman, um, John Greenwald, who runs a site called The Black Vault, where for years he has done very deep dives into the Freedom of Information Act to try and find information on a variety of subjects, some of them dealing with UAPs. And he actually got quite a few documents about this. So even though there was a formal analysis that was done by the FAA, even though this was presented to other branches of government, there's enough other evidence out there, including the initial, initial incident report, interviews with the uh, flight crew. This is all government documents. This isn't you know, third hand or anything that's out there. So this event definitely happened. To this day, either the FAA or anyone else has definitively said what it was these folks saw out there. And again, there were, there were three different UAPs, all of them maneuvering around the aircraft. And the, the 747 itself, at one point, the air traffic controllers even told them, hey, let's do a 360 and see if this thing is still following you. And again, it was doing things which didn't make a whole lot of sense from a regular aircraft perspective. For example, you're doing a turn, let's say to the right, and whatever it was was off to your left and kept the same orientation as one does a 360. 
you're doing a 360 degree turn at a, in a 747 at 35,000 feet or so, or roughly 35,000 feet, that's a pretty wide circle. It would have to be a much wider circle for something to be several miles outboard of you and at a much higher speed in order to keep pace relative to the aircraft as one goes around the circle. So again, I have no idea what this was. I'm not even going to speculate what it was. But given that uh, there was radar returns off of this, this was a phenomenon, which was not only visual, but reflected radar energy. Does it mean it was a physical object? I don't know. Does it mean it was a weather phenomenon? I don't know. Is it something else? Yes. You know what? As I read through what you sent, I was very disappointed to see that Japan Airlines grounded the captain for a year. And it wasn't clear to me if it was the whole crew that was grounded or just the captain. But boy, that's a sorry state of affairs when when uh, you, you do something like that. That means everybody else that sees something is not going to say it. And, you know, it puts a lid on it. And uh, that's not going to get anything resolved. I mean, if we're going to do investigations, we have to do them openly and honestly and encourage people to come forward, not punish anybody who comes forward. Especially in hindsight, when you look at what was uncovered in this event, that captain and that crew was, was entirely correct. Something was going on and they couldn't answer the something. Uh, and nobody up to this point in time is able to answer what was going on. Fortunately, they didn't panic. Fortunately, they kept the, a, a steady hand on the airplane. But that's not to say that somebody else in the similar circumstances might do something uh, evasive action that could get them in trouble. And it wasn't just the flight crew that, in my opinion, did the right thing. The air traffic controllers who were keeping a ongoing conversation and giving giving order, commands and suggestions and whatnot, in my opinion, from my inexpert outsider opinion, there is nothing about the interaction that was um, dangerous in any way, nothing about the interaction that would have made the situation worse. They were trying to bring other assets into the picture to try and understand, to get a broader picture of what's going on, including other aircraft, other civilian aircraft and military assets. So as a case study of what to do in a UAP situation, this is a fantastic case study. And uh, I don't know why the uh, allegedly the CIA took away the analysis, but if they did do analysis further beyond this, if they had other uh, intelligence assets to bring to bear on this, to give shed more light on this, by all means, share that with the civilian aviation community. You don't have to re reveal the sources and methods. In my experience in the intelligence community, that's one of the key things. Sources and methods, you never reveal. The analysis, hey, that's something altogether different. You know, it's kind of scary that our own government would deny access to something as, as out in the open as this was. You know, and, and uh, there's so many other things that they, they sort of try to sweep under the rugs, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. But, I mean, what's wrong with keeping the citizens of this country informed? It's not, this is not necessarily national security. It's an event that's out there. Far too many people know about it when it happened, but yet they still try to bury it and keep it out, uh, out of the light of the day when it really should be out in the open because maybe they'll find out that there's more of this going on and because of the punishment or, or other reasons, 
uh, a number of people that may have information are not willing to come forward. You know, I don't know that I'd be willing to come forward uh, under the circumstances like this. So it's it's uh, sort of discouraging that our government does that. But maybe now that Congress has gotten involved, I'm sure Congress was involved before, but now that it's out in the open with Congress, uh, maybe now things are going to change. It's been nearly 37 years since this happened. And yes, there's a whole lot of uh, movement toward and making something happen with putting together a formal organization or several formal organizations to gather this data, look at this data, and to share this data. But for now, we have to go with what we have. So I thought to myself, what is the current guidance given to pilots and others in the aviation community with reporting these events? Now, I'm going to go to the Airman's Information Manual, which is a standard document that uh, you know anyone who flies uh, in, in the United States, they'll have some familiarity with it. And I'm going to go to section 7.7, excuse me, 7-7-4, unidentified flying object UFO reports. Again, the AIM has not been updated to the term of art used today at UAP for unidentified anomalous phenomena. But the same, uh, well, you would apply the same rationale here. Here's what they say, two parts, part A, Persons wanting to report UFO slash unexplained phenomena activity should contact a UFO slash unexplained phenomena reporting data collection center, such as the National UFO Report Reporting Center, etc. B, if concern is expressed that life or property might be endangered, report the activity to the local law enforcement department. So let me take this apart piece by piece. Hold your horses. I know, I know. And no cursing. This is a family show. Let's go with part A, that's the least controversial. I've actually, over the years, have been in contact with the person who runs the National UFO Reporting Center. This is a gentleman who has been extremely dedicated to collecting UFO reports for years. And uh, again, he is one person. He does a great job, has a fantastic website, and I'll flash uh, on the screen for those watching the video, the URL of this site. But he's only one person and he's done a, it's a fantastic job compiling this. And I'm sure that one could take this and analyze it, these written reports, and get a picture of some kinds of phenomena. But he's only one person. He's not an organization. And when he stops doing this, what do you do then? They don't even give you any other places to go to. Now, on the local law enforcement perspective, let's say you're a pilot. Let's say you're flying. Let's say you see something. In the modern era, you can whip out four flight rerun the flight and figure out exactly where you were geographically when this happened. What is local law enforcement when you're in the sky? First off, in general, and I'm no lawyer, the federal government controls, the, they regulate the sky and they regulate what can and can't happen. So if there is a legal issue involving anything flying, that's usually a federal thing. Why should you go to a local jurisdiction? I don't know. Second, what local jurisdiction has the time resources, inclination, or self-interest to follow up on this. And the first author, first question is, where did it happen? 20 miles from the airport. Well, that's out of my jurisdiction. You know, so that's, that's really, that, I mean, that is just crazy that they make that statement in there. Absolutely crazy. And this is a statement that's been there in one form or another for years, and there has been no movement there. Now, Obviously, the AIM is not the first and last word in what to do in a situation like this. 
clearly, if there was something that was a safety flight issue, there are other things that would probably kick in immediately. For example, if you have a what you think is a near midair with another aircraft or with some unknown phenomena, there's a, a near midair collision system database that you can apply to. If you think you have a, a drone of some kind at altitude that's about to hit you, there's a drone reporting database you can go to. Someone fires a laser at you, there's a, there's a database for that as well. There is no equivalent database that the U.S. government has for this sort of situation, except, in my opinion, the aviation safety reporting system run by NASA on behalf of the FAA. Uh, that's something where, for years, they have collected reports. They don't care what locality it was, as long as it was in U.S. jurisdiction. And they de-identify the information. It will be publicly available, but no one will know who you were, what your registration number was on the aircraft, who you worked for, etc. They do a very good job of de-identifying it so that the core information that will enhance aviation safety is there for everyone to see. Yeah, it's probably the only place that will collect it today. That needs to change. You know, I just I just read just uh, within the last 24 hours, maybe less earlier today, uh, of a report someplace. I didn't finish it because I didn't realize we were going to do the show tonight, so I didn't I didn't uh, pull it down. I will go back, but there there was a report about a UFO somewhere within the last uh, you know 20 hours. Interesting. Man, uh, you know, I'm not going to repeat the uh, government party line, but this is a realistic party line. Um, most of these reports, if they're investigated, will probably not be something that outrageous. And I've said this before on another show. There have been times when I would walk out the door, and if I didn't know it was a space station flying over, I would have thought it was an airliner. Because a space station is at an altitude and uh, an orbital speed such that if you look up at it at the right time of the evening, when the sun's hitting it and it's dark where you are, it looks like a airliner flying over with a single white light on it. And as it goes into shadow, it turns from white to red and disappears. Now, if you were to look at that, you say to yourself, oh my God, an airliner just caught fire and disappeared because it was like a white light. Then it started to turn reddish orange and it winked out. Let me call somebody. That was a space station. Another time I go out my front door to pick up the mail just after sunset. And I see a string of white lights coming directly at me over the horizon. Now, I'd known that this was a sort of look and feel of a, of a launch of the Starlink satellites. So I whipped out my uh, camera. And later on, I went to another resource that had exactly the time that it would have flown over my position. So this was an unusual string of lights, unlike any string of airplanes I've ever seen fly. But I kind of knew at the time it was a satellite. Later on, I had information to confirm it was a satellite. But I can easily see where someone who doesn't know about Starlink would look at that and think, my God, why are these airplanes flying in a line right over my house? Let me call somebody. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of that in, in some of those UFO reports. But I'm also not, not naive enough to think that there aren't some that are legit. This one in Alaska was definitely legit, definitely unknown, and I am not even going to speculate as to what it is. I, I agree with you, Todd, after reading all the stuff that you sent me. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a fun new podcast called So There I Was. If you're a fan of aviation or simply enjoy hearing captivating stories, then this is the podcast for you. Hosted by former Marine pilots Fig and Repeat, 
This podcast shares first-hand accounts of flying experiences that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you're in the mood for something funny, scary, poignant, or tragic, this podcast has it all. With a relaxed and conversational tone, the pilots share their stories like you're sitting right there with them at the bar after a flight. Hear from fighter pilots, astronauts, Blue Angels, aircraft carrier captains, Navy and Coast Guard rescue pilots, and many more. Most have survived near-death experiences. Others have overcome incredible disabilities to continue to fly airplanes. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Hear what it feels like to be shot off the bow of a carrier or into space. Experience the terror of landing on a pitching deck on a night so black that the pilot can barely taxi afterwards because his legs are shaking so badly. Hear firsthand how lonely it is to be in the middle of the ocean in a life raft on a dark night in eight-foot seas. Each story is unique and told with a level of detail that will make you feel like you were there. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll laugh until you cry. But one thing is certain. You won't be bored. So there I was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. Well, I think we talked that to death. We got we got some others to talk about. There's some more material you sent, so we'll have another a show sometime in the future to talk about some more of this process. And uh, you know, not to sense, not to make it a big deal out of UFOs, not to say the sky is falling with UFOs, but just to say there's something going on that we need to understand. And that is the bottom line. And uh, I have no second to last word because. I think you just gave the a great second to last word. So I will let you go straight into the last word. Well, the last word is the same word I always preach. So we're here to try to help reduce accidents, as is our sponsor of EMCO and many other people in the industry. And how do you do that? By paying attention to detail. If you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning before you get to the airport. And after you get to the airport, do it again. Make sure you check the weather here, there, and everything in between. Right? So many times we come across accidents that we're working where the weather was good where we left, the weather was good where we're going, and they got caught in a bad storm in the middle and crashed. So please, you got to pay attention to all of that detail. When you get out to your airplane, do a very detailed pre-flight inspection. Touch your airplane, wiggle things, right? Make sure if you do that enough, you'll know and be able to identify when something has changed, when something is wrong. So do a very detailed inspection, a good pre-flight inside the airplane. And after you take off, put that head on a swivel because we have a lot of people flying today with skill levels that go from the very bottom all the way up to airline captain. Right? But some people make mistakes. Even the airline captains make mistakes. So put that head on the swivel so you don't have or get involved with somebody else's misadventure. And please, please fly safe. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. 
By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.